Hey y'all, welcome back to Books for Boredom. Um, we are now on our, what, fourth episode now? Feels like it's been such a long time that I've been like planning to do this and now we're finally getting into, like I said last week, the meat of the story. We are now about halfway, a little bit more than halfway. We've got, I think, up to 16 chapters and then there's an epilogue at the end and we're on chapter 10 and I'm up, I'm about to read 10, 11, and 12, maybe 13 if it's short. So I would say by the end of next week and on, we'll be finished and then we can talk about what we think of the story. Um, but I want to, first of all, I want to thank a few of you who have been listening um, for answering the polls and stuff like that that I've been putting up. It's really been nice to know that you need to know more about the story before you make an opinion. And I want to see, I think I might put the same poll up that I had last week about um, who do you think is going to gonna be offed next because it's just interesting to see what you guys think. Um, yeah, and we've had, we just finished our last chapter with General MacArthur being killed, which is not fun. So now we get to see <laughs> who else is going to suffer a horrible fate. Um, the last thing that I want to say before I get into chapter 10 is just, I want to thank everyone for listening, whoever has been listening, even if you haven't stayed, um, or you don't know if this is the right podcast for you, I still appreciate you giving it a try, and I hope that, um, it's been good for everyone so far. It's really been helping me, it's very therapeutic, like I said, and it's just nice to be able to share this kind of stuff with other people because it's something that I love and hold very dearly to my heart. Um, so thank you for that. And I also want to say, because I probably won't say anything next week, Merry Christmas. Um, I hope everyone who's listening has a wonderful Christmas. I hope you get lots of presents. I hope you hang out with your family. Um, I hope everyone stays safe and healthy throughout that. And um, I'm always around. I'm always here to be a person to talk to so if you want to send off a message or a comment or something saying happy happy christmas merry christmas see you next year happy new year all that kind of stuff i'm here so um once again merry christmas everybody um i hope you guys are very safe very happy and very healthy throughout this year and i'm very thankful for everyone and now i'm gonna shut up and get to the story Chapter 10, Part 1 Do you believe it? Vera asked. She and Philip Lombard sat on the windowsill of the living room. Outside, the rain poured down and the wind howled in great shuddering gusts against the window panes. Philip Lombard cocked his head slightly on one side before answering. Then he said, You mean do I believe that old Wargrave is right when he says it's one of us? Yes, Lombard said slowly. It's difficult to say. Logically, you know, he's right, and yet... Vera took the words out of his mouth. And yet it seems so incredible. Philip Lombard made a grimace. The whole thing's incredible. But after MacArthur's death, there's no more doubt as to one thing. There's no question now of accidents or suicides. It's definitely murder. Three murders up to date. Vera shivered. She said, It's like some awful dream. I keep feeling that things like this can't happen. He said with understanding. I know. Presently, a tap will come on the door and early morning tea will be brought in. Vera said, Oh, how I wish that could happen. Lombard said gravely, Yes, but it won't. We're all in the dream. 
and we've got to be pretty much upon our guard from now on. Vera said, lowering her voice, if, if it is one of them, which do you think it is? Philip Lombard grinned suddenly. He said, I take it you are accepting our two selves? Well, that's all right. I know very well that I'm not the murderer, and I don't fancy that there's anything insane about you, Vera. You strike me as being one of the sanest and most level-headed girls I've come across. I'd stake my reputation on your sanity. With a slightly wry smile, Vera said, Thank you. He said, Come now, Miss Vera Claythorne. Aren't you going to return the compliment? Vera hesitated a minute. Then she said, You've admitted, you know, that you don't hold human life particularly sacred. But all the same, I can't see you as... as the man who dictated that gramophone record. Lombard said, Quite right. If I were to commit one or more murders, it would be solely for what I could get out of them. This mass clearance isn't my line of country. Good. Then we'll eliminate ourselves and concentrate on our five fellow prisoners. Which of them is UN Owen? Well, at a guess, and with absolutely nothing to go upon, I'd plump for Wargrave. Oh! Vera sounded surprised. She thought a minute or two, and then said, Why? Hard to say exactly, but to begin with, he's an old man, and he's been presiding over courts of law for years. That is to say, he's played God. That must go to a man's head eventually. He gets to see himself as all-powerful, as holding the power of life and death, and it's possible that his brain might snap, and he might want to go one step farther and be executioner and judge extraordinary. Vera said slowly, Yes, I suppose that's possible. Lombard said, Who do you plump for? Without any hesitation, Vera answered, Dr. Armstrong. Lombard gave a low whistle. The doctor, huh? You know, I should have put him last of all. Vera shook her head. Oh no. Two deaths have been poison. That rather points to a doctor. And then you can't get over the fact that the only thing we are absolutely certain Mrs. Rogers had was the sleeping draught that he gave her. Lombard admitted. Yes, that's true. Vera persisted. If a doctor went mad, it would be a long time before anyone suspected, and doctors overwork and have a lot of strain. Philip Lombard said, Yes, but I doubt if you could have killed MacArthur. He wouldn't have had time during that brief interval when I left him. Not, that is, unless he fairly haired down there and back again, and I doubt if he's in good enough training to do that and show no signs of it. Vera said, he didn't do it then. He had an opportunity later. When? When he went down to call the general to lunch. Philip whistled again very softly. He said, so you think he did it then? Pretty cool thing to do. Vera said impatiently, what risk was there? He's the only person here with medical knowledge. He can swear the body's been dead at least an hour, and who's to contradict him? Philip looked at her thoughtfully. You know, he said, that's a clever idea of yours. I wonder. Part 2 Who is it, Mr. Bloor? That's what I want to know. Who is it? Rogers' face was working. His hands were clenched around the polishing leather that he held in his hand. Ex-Inspector Bloor said, Ugh, my lad, that's the question. One of us, his lordship said. Which one? That's what I want to know. Who's the fiend in human form? That, said Bloor, is what we all would like to know. Rogers said shrewdly, 
But you've got an idea, Mr. Bloor. You've got an idea, haven't you? I may have an idea, said Bloor slowly, but that's a long way from being sure. I may be wrong. All I can say is that if I'm right, the person in question is a very cool customer. A very cool customer indeed. Rogers wiped the perspiration from his forehead. He said hoarsely, It's like a bad dream. That's what it is. Bloor said, looking at him curiously, Got any ideas yourself, Rogers? The butler shook his head. I don't know. I don't know at all. And that's what's frightening the life out of me. To have no idea. Part 3 Dr. Armstrong said violently, We must get out of here. We must. At all costs. Mr. Justice Wargrave looked thoughtfully out of the smoking room window. He played with the cord of his eyeglasses. He said, I do not, of course, profess to be a weather prophet, but I should say that it's very unlikely that a boat could reach us, even if they knew of our plight in under 24 hours. And even then, only if the wind drops. Dr. Armstrong dropped his head in his hands and groaned. He said, and in the meantime, we all may be murdered in our beds. I hope not, said Mr. Justice Wargrave. I intend to take every possible precaution against such a thing happening. It flashed across Dr. Armstrong's mind that an old man like the judge was far more tenacious of life than a younger man would be. He had often marveled at the fact in his professional career. Here he was, junior to the judge by perhaps 20 years, and yet with a vastly inferior sense of self-preservation. Mr. Justice Wargrave was thinking, Murdered in our beds. These doctors are all the same. They think in cliches, a thoroughly commonplace mind. The doctor said, There have been three victims already, remember? Certainly. But you must remember that they were unprepared for the attack. We're forewarned. Dr. Armstrong said bitterly, What can we do? Sooner or later, I think, said Mr. Justice Wargrave, that there are several things we can do. Armstrong said, We have no idea, even who it can be. The judge stroked his chin and murmured, Oh, you know, I wouldn't quite say that. Armstrong stared at him. Do you mean you know? Mr. Justice Wargrave said cautiously, As regards actual evidence such as is necessary in court, I admit that I have none. But it appears to me, reviewing the whole business, that one particular person is sufficiently clearly indicated. Yes, I think so. Armstrong stared at him. He said, I don't understand. Part 4 Miss Brent was upstairs in her bedroom. She took up her Bible and went to sit by the window. She opened it. Then, after a minute's hesitation, she set it aside and went over to the dressing table. From a drawer in it, she took out a small, black-covered notebook. She opened it and began writing. A terrible thing has happened. General MacArthur is dead. His cousin married Elsie McPherson. There's no doubt but that he was murdered. After luncheon, the judge made us a most interesting speech. He's convinced that the murderer is one of us. That means that one of us is possessed by a devil. I'd already suspected that. Which of us is it? They're all asking themselves that. I alone know. She sat for some time without moving. Her eyes grew vague and filmy. The pencil straggled drunkenly in her fingers. In shaking, loose capitals, she wrote, The murderer's name is Beatrice Taylor. Her eyes closed. 
Suddenly, with a start, she awoke. She looked down at the notebook. With an angry exclamation, she scored through the vague, unevenly scrawled characters of the last sentence. She said in a low voice, Did I write that? Did I? I must be going mad. Part 5 The storm increased. The wind howled against the side of the house. Everyone was in the living room. They sat listlessly huddled together, and surreptitiously they watched each other. When Rogers brought in the tea tray, they all jumped. He said, Shall I draw the curtains? It would make it more cheerful-like. Receiving an assent to this, the curtains were drawn and the lamps turned on. The room grew more cheerful. A little of the shadow lifted. Surely by tomorrow the storm would be over and someone would come. A boat would arrive. Vera Claythorne said, Will you pour out tea, Miss Brent? The elder woman replied, No, you do it, dear. The teapot's so heavy, and I've lost two skeins of my gray knitting wool. So annoying. Vera moved to the tea table. There was a cheerful rattle and a clink of china. Normality returned. Tea. Bless ordinary everyday afternoon tea. Philip Lombard made a cheery remark. Blow responded. Dr. Armstrong told a humorous story. Mr. Justice Wargrave, who ordinarily hates tea, sipped approvingly. Into this relaxed atmosphere came Rogers, and Rogers was upset. He said nervously and at random, Excuse me, sir, but does anyone know what's become of the bathroom curtain? Lombard's head went up with a jerk. The bathroom curtain? What the devil do you mean? It's gone, sir. Clean vanished. I was going around drawing all the curtains, and the one in the lap bathroom wasn't there any longer. Mr. Justice Wargrave asked, Was it there this morning? Oh, yes, sir. Blore said, What kind of curtain is it? Scarlet oil silk, sir. It went with the scarlet tiles. Lombard said, And it's gone? Gone, sir. They stared at each other. Blore said heavily, Well, after all, what of it? It's mad, but so's everything else. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You can't kill anybody with an oil silk curtain. Forget about it. Rogers said, Yes, sir, thank you. He went out, shutting the door behind him. Inside the room, the pall of fear had fallen anew. Again, surreptitiously, they watched each other. Part 6 Dinner came, was eaten, and cleared away. A simple meal, mostly out of tins. Afterwards, in the living room, the strain was almost too great to be borne. At 9 o'clock, Emily Brent rose to her feet. She said, I'm going to bed. Vera said, I'll go to bed too. The two women went up the stairs and Lombard and Bloor came with them. Standing at the top of the stairs, the two men watched the women go into their respective rooms and shut the doors. They heard the sound of two bolts being shot and the turning of two keys. Bloor said with a grin, no need to tell them to lock their doors. Lombard said, well, they're all right for the night at any rate. He went down again and the other followed him. Part 7 The four men went to bed an hour later. They went up together. Rogers, from the dining room where he was setting the table for breakfast, saw them go up. He heard them pause on the landing above. Then the judge's voice spoke. I need hardly advise you gentlemen to lock your doors. Bloor said, and once more put a chair under the handle. There are ways of turning locks from the outside. Lombard murmured, my dear Bloor. The trouble with you is you know too much. 
the judge said gravely. Good night, gentlemen. May we all meet safely in the morning. Rogers came out of the dining room and slipped halfway up the stairs. He saw four figures pass through four doors and heard the turning of four locks and the shooting of four bolts. He nodded his head. That's all right, he muttered. He went back into the dining room. Yes, everything was ready for the morning. His eye lingered on the center plaque of looking glass and the seven little china figures. A sudden grin transformed his face. He murmured, I'll see no one plays tricks tonight, at any rate. Crossing the room, he locked the door to the pantry. Then going through the other door to the hall, he pulled the door to, locked it, and slipped the key into his pocket. Then extinguishing the lights, he hurried up the stairs and into his new bedroom. There was only one possible hiding place in it, the tall wardrobe, and he looked into that immediately. Then, locking and bolting the door, he prepared for bed. He said to himself, No more China soldier tricks tonight. I've seen to that. Chapter 11 Part 1 Philip Lombard had had the habit of waking at daybreak. He did so on this particular morning. He raised himself on an elbow and listened. The wind had somewhat abated, but was still blowing. He could hear no sound of rain. At eight o'clock, the wind was blowing more strongly, but Lombard didn't hear it. He was asleep again. At 9.30, he was sitting on the edge of his bed looking at his watch. He put it to his ear. Then his lips drew back from his teeth in that curious, wolf-like smile characteristic of the man. He said very softly, I think the time has come to do something about this. At 25 minutes to 10, he was tapping on the closed door of Bloor's room. The latter opened it cautiously. His hair was tussled and his eyes were still dim with sleep. Philip Lombard said affably, Sleeping the clock around? Well, shows you've got an easy conscience. Bloor said shortly, What's the matter? Lombard answered, Anybody called you? Or brought you any tea? Do you know what time it is? Bloor looked over his shoulder at a small traveling clock by his bedside. He said, 25 to 10. Wouldn't have believed I could have slept like that. Where's Rogers? Philip Lombard said, It's a case of echo answers where... What do you mean? asked the other sharply. Lombard said, I mean that Rogers is missing. He isn't in his room or anywhere else. And there's no kettle on and the kitchen fire isn't even lit. Bloor swore under his breath. He said, where the devil can he be? And on the island somewhere? Wait till I get some clothes on, see if the others know anything. Lombard nodded. He moved along the line of closed doors. He found Armstrong up and nearly dressed. Mr. Justice Wargrave, like Bloor, had to be roused from sleep. Vera Claythorne was dressed. Emily Brent's room was empty. The little party moved through the house. Rogers' room, as Philip Lombard had already ascertained, was untenanted. The bed had been slept in, and his razor and sponge and soap were wet. Lombard said he got up all right. Vera said in a low voice, which she tried to make firm and assured, You don't think he's hiding somewhere waiting for us? Lombard said, My dear girl, I'm prepared to think anything of anyone. My advice is that we keep together until we find him. Armstrong said, He must be out on the island somewhere. Bloor, who had joined them, dressed but still unshaved, said, Where's Miss Brent got to? That's another mystery. But as they arrived in the hall, Emily Brent came in through the front door. She had on a Macintosh. She said, The sea's as high as ever. I shouldn't think any boat could put out today. Bloor said, Have you been wandering about the island alone, Miss Brent? Don't you realize that that's an exceedingly foolish thing to do? 
Emily Brent said, I assure you, Mr. Bloor, that I kept an extremely sharp look. Bloor grunted. He said, seen anything of Rogers? Miss Brent's eyebrows rose. Rogers? No, I haven't seen him this morning. Why? Mr. Justice Wargrave, shaved, dressed, and with his false teeth in position, came down the stairs. He moved to the open dining room door. He said, Ah, laid the table for breakfast, I see. Lombard said he might have done that last night. They all moved inside the room, looking at the neatly set plates and cutlery, at the rows of cups on the sideboard, at the felt mats placed ready for the coffee urn. It was Vera who saw it first. She caught the judge's arm, and the grip of her athletic fingers made the old gentleman wince. She cried out, The soldiers! Look! There were only six china figures in the middle of the table. Part 2 They found him shortly afterwards. He was in the little wash house across the yard. He'd been chopping sticks in preparation for lighting the kitchen fire. The small chopper was still in his hand. A bigger chopper, heavy affair, was leaning against the door. The metal of it stained a dull brown. It corresponded only too well with the deep wound in the back of Rogers's head. Part 3 Perfectly clear, said Armstrong. The murderer must have crept up behind him, swung the chopper once, and brought it down on his head as he was bending over. Bloor was busy on the handle of the chopper and the flour sifter from the kitchen. Justice Wargrave asked, Would it have needed great force, doctor? Armstrong said gravely, A woman could have done it, if that's what you mean. He gave a quick glance around. Vera Claythorne and Emily Brand had retired to the kitchen. The girl could have done it easily. She's an athletic type. In appearance, Miss Brent is fragile-looking, but that type of woman has often a lot of wiry strength, and you must remember that anyone who's mentally unhinged has a good deal of unsuspected strength. The judge nodded thoughtfully. Bloor rose to his knees with a sigh. No fingerprints. Handle was wiped afterwards. A sound of laughter was heard. They turned sharply. Vera Claythorne was standing in the yard. She cried out in a high, shrill voice, shaking with wild bursts of laughter. Do they keep bees on this island? Tell me that. Where do we go for honey? They stared at her uncomprehendingly. It was as though the sane, well-balanced girl had gone mad before their eyes. She went on in that high, unnatural voice. Don't stare like that. As though you thought I was mad. It's sane enough what I'm asking. Bees? Hives? Bees? Oh, don't you understand? Haven't you read that idiotic rhyme? It's up in all your bedrooms, put there for you to study. We might have come here straight away if we'd had sense. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. And the next verse. I know the whole thing by heart. I tell you. Six little soldier boys playing with the hive. And that's why I'm asking, do they keep bees on this island? Isn't it funny? Isn't it damn funny? She began laughing wildly again. Mr. Armstrong strode forward. He raised his hand and struck her a flat blow on the cheek. She gasped, hiccuped, and swallowed. She stood motionless a minute. Then she said, Thank you. I'm all right now. Her voice was once more calm and controlled, the voice of the efficient games mistress. She turned and went across the yard into the kitchen, saying, Miss Brent and I are getting you breakfast. Can you, um, bring some sticks to light the fire? The marks of the doctor's hand stood out red on her cheek. As she went into the kitchen, Bloor said, 
Well, you dealt with that all right, Doctor. Armstrong said apologetically. Had to. We can't cope with hysteria on the top of everything else. Philip Lombard said, She's not a hysterical type. Armstrong agreed. Oh no, good, healthy, sensible girl. Just the sudden shock, it might happen to anybody. Rogers had chopped a certain amount of firewood before he'd been killed. They gathered it up and took it into the kitchen. Vera and Emily Brent were busy. Miss Brent was raking out the stove. Vera was cutting the rind off the bacon. Emily Brent said, Thank you. We'll be as quick as we can. Say half an hour to three quarters. The kettle's got to boil. Part 4 Ex-Inspector Blore said in a low, hoarse voice to Philip Lombard, You know what I'm thinking? Philip Lombard said, As you're just about to tell me, it's not worth the trouble of guessing. Ex-Inspector Blore was an earnest man. A light touch was incomprehensible to him. He went on heavily. There was a case in America. Old gentleman and his wife, both killed with an axe. Middle of the morning. Nobody in the house but the daughter and the maid. Maid, it was proved, couldn't have done it. Daughter was a respectable, middle-aged spinster. Seemed incredible. So incredible that they acquitted her. But they never found any other explanation. He paused. I thought of that when I saw the axe. And then when I went into the kitchen and saw her there, so neat and calm, hadn't turned a hair. That girl, coming all over hysterical. Well, that's natural. The sort of thing you'd expect, don't you think? Philip Lombard said laconically. It might be. Blore went on. But the other. So neat and prim, wrapped up in that apron. Mrs. Rogers' apron, I suppose, saying, Breakfast will be ready in half an hour or so. If you ask me, that woman's as mad as a hatter. Lots of elderly spinsters go that way. I don't mean go in for homicide on the grand scale, but go queer in their heads. Unfortunately, it's taken her this way. Religious mania. Thinks she's God's instrument. Something of that kind. She sits in her room, you know, reading her Bible. Lombard sighed and said, It's hardly proof positive of an unbalanced mentality, Blore. But Blore went on, ploddingly, perseverely. And then she was out, in her Macintosh, and she'd been down to look at the sea. The other shook his head. He said, Rogers was killed as he was chopping firewood. That is to say, first thing when he got up. The Brent wouldn't have needed to wander about outside for hours afterwards. If you ask me, the murderer of Rogers would take jolly good care to be rolled up in bed snoring. Blore said, You're missing the point, Mr. Lombard. If the woman was innocent, she'd be too dead scared to go wandering about by herself. She'd only do that if she knew that she had nothing to fear. That's to say, if she herself is the criminal. Philip Lombard said, It's a good point. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. He added with a faint grin, Glad you don't still suspect me. Blore said rather shamefacedly, I did start by thinking of you. That revolver and the queer story you told or, or didn't tell. But I've realized now that that was really a bit too obvious. He paused and said, Hope you feel the same about me. Philip said thoughtfully, I may be wrong, of course, but I can't feel that you've got enough information for this job. All I can say is, if you're the criminal, you're a damned fine actor, and I take my hat off to you. He lowered his voice. Just between ourselves, Blore, and taking into account that we'll probably both be a couple of stiffs before another day is out, you did indulge in that spot of perjury, I suppose. 
floor shifted uneasily from one foot to the other. He said at last, Doesn't seem to make much odds now. Oh well, here goes. Landor was innocent, right enough. The gang had got me squared, and between us, we got him put away for a stretch. Mind you, I wouldn't admit this. If there were any witnesses, finished Lombard with a grin. It's just between you and me. Well, I hope you made a tiny bit out of it. Didn't make what I should have done. Mean crowd, the Purcell gang. I got my promotion, though. And Landor got penal servitude and died in prison. I couldn't know he was going to die, could I? Demanded Bloor. No, that was your bad luck. Mine? His, you mean? Yours, too. Because as a result of it, it looks as though your own life is going to be cut unpleasantly short. Me? Bloor stared at him. Do you think I'm going to go the way of Rogers and the rest of them? Not me. I'm watching out for myself pretty carefully, I can tell you. Lombard said, Oh, well, I'm not a betting man. And anyway, if you were dead, I wouldn't get paid. Look here, Mr. Lombard, what do you mean? Philip Lombard showed his teeth. I mean, my dear Bloor, that in my opinion, you haven't got a chance. What? Your lack of imagination is going to make you absolutely a sitting target. A criminal of the imagination of you and Owen can make rings around you any time he, or she, wants to. Bloor's face went crimson. He demanded angrily. And what about you? Philip Lombard's face went hard and dangerous. He said, I have a pretty good imagination of my own. I've been in tight places before now and got out of them. I think, I won't say more than that, but I think, I'll get out of this one. Part 5. The eggs were in the frying pan. Vera, toasting bread, thought to herself, Why did I make a hysterical fool of myself? That was a mistake. Keep calm, my girl. Keep calm. After all, she'd always prided herself on her level-headedness. Miss Claythorne was wonderful. Kept her head. Started off swimming after Cyril at once. Why think of that now? All that was over. Cyril had disappeared long before she got near the rock. She had felt the current take her, sweeping her out to sea. She had let herself go with it, swimming quietly, floating till the boat arrived. They'd praised her courage and her sang Freud, but not Hugo. Hugo had just looked at her. God, how it hurt, even now, to think of him. Where was he? What was he doing? Was he engaged, married? Emily Brent said sharply, Vera, that toast is burning. Oh, sorry, Miss Brent. So it is. How stupid of me. Emily Brent lifted out the last egg from the sizzling fat. Vera, putting a fresh piece of bread on the toasting fork, said curiously, You're wonderfully calm, Miss Brent. Emily Brent said, pressing her lips together. I was brought up to keep my head and never to make a fuss. Vera thought mechanically, repressed as a child. That accounts for a lot. She said, Aren't you afraid? She paused and then added, Or don't you mind dying? Dying. It was as though a sharp little gimlet had run into the solid, congealed mess of Emily Brent's brain. Dying. But she wasn't going to die. The others would die, yes, but not she, Emily Brent. This girl didn't understand. Emily wasn't afraid. Naturally, none of the Brents were afraid. All our people were service people. They faced death unflinchingly. They led upright lives just as she, Emily Brent, had led an upright life. She had never done anything to be ashamed of. And so, naturally, she wasn't going to die. 
the Lord is mindful of his own. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. It was daylight now, there is no terror. We shall none of us leave this island. Who had said that? General MacArthur, of course, whose cousin had married Elsie McPherson. He hadn't seemed to care. He had seemed, actually, to welcome the idea. Wicked. Almost impious to feel that way. Some people thought so little of death that they actually took their own lives. Beatrice Taylor. Last night she had dreamed of Beatrice. Dreamt that she was outside, pressing her face against the window and moaning, asking to be let in. But Emily Brent hadn't wanted to let her in. Because if she did, something terrible would happen. Emily came to herself with a start. That girl was looking at her very strangely. She said in a brisk voice, Everything's ready, isn't it? We'll take the breakfast in. Part 6 Breakfast was a curious meal. Everyone was very polite. May I get you some more coffee, Miss Brent? Miss Claythorne, a slice of ham? Another piece of toast? Six people, all outwardly self-possessed and normal. And within, thoughts that ran round in a circle like squirrels in a cage. What next? Who? Which? Would it work, I wonder? It's worth trying. If there's time. My god, if there's time. Religious mania, that's the ticket. Looking at her, though, you can hardly believe it. Suppose I'm wrong. It's crazy. Everything's crazy. I'm going crazy. Wall disappearing. Red silk curtains. It doesn't make sense. I can't get the hang of it. The damned fool. He believed every word I said to him. It was easy. I must be careful, though. Very careful. Six of those little china figures. Only six. How many will there be by tonight? Who will have the last egg? Marmalade? Thanks, can I cut you some bread? Six people behaving normally at breakfast. Chapter 12 Part 1 the meal was over. Mr. Justice Wargrave cleared his throat. He said in a small, authoritative voice, It would be advisable, I think, if we met to discuss the situation. Shall we say in half an hour's time in the drawing room? Everyone made a sound suggestive of agreement. Vera began to pile plates together. She said, I'll clear away and wash up. Philip Lombard said, We'll bring the stuff out to the pantry for you. Thanks. Emily Brent, rising to her feet, sat down again. She said, Oh, dear. The judge said, Anything the matter, Miss Brent? Emily said apologetically. I'm sorry. I'd like to help Miss Claythorne, but I don't know how it is. I feel just a little giddy. Giddy, huh? Dr. Armstrong came towards her. Quite natural. Delayed shock. I can give you something to- No! The word burst from her lips like an exploding shell. It took everyone aback. Dr. Armstrong flushed a deep red. There was no mistaking the fear and suspicion in her face. He said stiffly, Just as you please, Miss Brent. She said, I don't wish to take anything, anything at all. I'll just sit here quietly till the giddiness passes off. They finished clearing away the breakfast things. Bloor said, I'm a domestic sort of man. I'll give you a hand, Miss Claythorne. Vera said, Thank you. Emily Brent was left alone sitting in the dining room. For a while, she heard a faint murmur of voices from the pantry. The giddiness was passing. She felt drowsy now, as though she could easily go to sleep. There was a buzzing in her ears. 
Or was it a real buzzing in the room? She thought, It's like a bee. A bumblebee. Presently, she saw the bee. It was crawling up the windowpane. Vera Claythorne had talked about bees this morning. Bees and honey. She liked honey. Honey in the comb and strain it yourself through a muslin bag. Drip, drip, drip. There was somebody in the room. Somebody all wet and dripping. Beatrice Taylor come from the river. She had only to turn her head and she would see her. But she couldn't turn her head. If she were to call out. But she couldn't call out. There was no one else in the house. She was all alone. She heard footsteps. Soft, dragging footsteps coming up behind her. The stumbling footsteps of the drowned girl. There was a wet, dank smell in her nostrils. On the window pane, the bee was buzzing. Buzzing. And then she felt the prick. The bee sting on the side of her neck. Part 2 In the drawing room, they were waiting for Emily Brent. Vera Claythorne said, Shall I go and fetch her? Bloor said quickly, Just a minute. Vera sat down again. Everyone looked inquiringly at Bloor. He said, Look here. Everybody, my opinion is this. We needn't look farther for the author of these deaths in the dining room at this minute. I take my oath that woman's the one we're after. Armstrong said, And the motive? Religious mania. What do you say, doctor? Armstrong said, It's perfectly possible. I've nothing to say against it, but of course we have no proof. Vera said, She was very odd in the kitchen when we were getting breakfast. Her eyes. She shivered. Lombard said, You can't judge her by that. We're all a bit off our heads by now. Bloor said, There's another thing. She's the only one who wouldn't give an explanation after that gramophone record. Why? Because she hadn't any to give. Vera stirred in her chair. She said, That's not quite true. She told me afterwards. Wargrave said, What did she tell you, Miss Claythorne? Vera repeated the story of Beatrice Taylor. Mr. Justice Wargrave observed, A perfectly straightforward story. I personally should have no difficulty in accepting it. Tell me, Miss Claythorne, did she appear to be troubled by a sense of guilt or a feeling of remorse for her attitude in the matter? None, whatever, said Vera. She was completely unmoved. Bloor said, Hearts as hard as flints, these righteous spinsters. Envy, mostly. Mr. Justice Wargrave said, It's now five minutes to eleven. I think we should summon Miss Brent to join our conclave. Bloor said, Aren't you going to take any action? The judge said, I fail to see what action we can take. Our suspicions are, at the moment, only suspicions. I will, however, ask Dr. Armstrong to observe Miss Brent's demeanor very carefully. Let's now go into the dining room. They found Emily Brent sitting in the chair in which they had left her. From behind, they saw nothing amiss except that she didn't seem to hear their entrance into the room. And then they saw her face, suffused with blood, with blue lips and starting eyes. Bloor said, Oh my god, she's dead! Part 3 The small, quiet voice of Mr. Justice Wargrave said, one more of us acquitted. Too late. Armstrong was bent over the dead woman. He sniffed the lips, shook his head, peered into the eyelids. Lombard said impatiently, How did she die, doctor? She was all right when we left her here. 
Armstrong's attention was riveted on a mark on the right side of the neck. He said, That's the mark of a hypodermic syringe. There was a buzzing sound from the windows. Vera cried, Look! A bumblebee! Remember what I said this morning, Armstrong said grimly. It wasn't that bee that stung her. A human hand held the syringe. The judge asked, What poison was injected? Armstrong answered, At a guess, one of the cyanides. Probably potassium cyanide, same as Anthony Marston. She must have died almost immediately by asphyxiation. Vera cried, But that bee! It can't be a coincidence. Lombard said grimly, Oh no, it isn't coincidence. It's her murderer's touch of local color. He's a playful beast, likes to stick to his damnable nursery jingle as closely as possible. For the first time, his voice was uneven, almost shrill. It was as though even his nerves, seasoned by a long career of hazards and dangerous undertakings, had given out at last. He said violently, It's mad. Absolutely mad. We're all mad, the judge said calmly. We have still, I hope, our reasoning powers. Did anyone bring a hypodermic syringe to this house? Dr. Armstrong, straightening himself, said in a voice that was not too well assured, Yes, I did. Four pairs of eyes fastened on him. He braced himself against the deep, hostile suspicion of those eyes. He said, Always travel with one. Most doctors do, Mr. Justice Wargrave said calmly. Quite so. Will you tell us, doctor, where that syringe is now? In the suitcase in my room, Wargrave said. We might perhaps verify that fact. The five of them went upstairs, a silent procession. The contents of the suitcases were turning on the floor. The hypodermic syringe was not there. Part 4 Armstrong said violently, Somebody must have taken it! There was silence in the room. Armstrong stood with his back to the window. Four pairs of eyes were on him, black with suspicion and accusation. He looked from Wargrave to Vera and repeatedly, helplessly, said, I tell you someone must have taken it. Blur was looking at Lombard who returned his gaze. The judge said, There are five of us here in this room. One of us is a murderer. The position is fraught with grave danger. Everything must be done in order to safeguard the four of us who are innocent. I'll now ask you, Dr. Armstrong, what drugs you have in your possession. Armstrong replied, I have a small medicine case here. You can examine it. You'll find some sleeping stuff, trianol and sulfonyl tablets, a, a packet of bromide, bicarbonate of soda, aspirin, nothing else. I have no cyanide in my possession. The judge said, I have myself some sleeping tablets. Sulfonyl, I think they are. I presume they would be lethal if a sufficiently large dose were given. You, Mr. Lombard, have in your possession a revolver. Lombard said sharply, What if I have? Only this. I propose that the doctor's supply of drugs, my own sulfonal tablets, your revolver, and anything else of the nature of drugs or firearms should be collected together and placed in a safe place. That after this is done, we should each of us submit to a search, both of our persons and of our effects. Lombard said, I'm damned if I'll give up my revolver. Wargrave said sharply, Mr. Lombard, you are a very strongly built and powerful young man, but ex-Inspector Bloor is also a man of powerful physique. I don't know what the outcome of a struggle between you would be, but I can tell you this. On Bloor's side, assisting him to the best of your, our ability would be myself, Dr. Armstrong, and Miss Claythorne. 
You will appreciate, therefore, that the odds against you, if you choose to resist, will be somewhat heavy. Lombard threw his head back. His teeth showed him what was almost a snarl. Oh, very well, then, since you've got it all taped out. Mr. Justice Wargrave nodded his head. You're a sensible young man. Where is this revolver of yours? In the drawer of the table by my bed. Good. I'll fetch it. I think it would be desirable if we went with you. Philip said with a smile that was still nearer a snarl. Suspicious devil, aren't you? They went along the corridor to Lombard's room. Philip strode across to the bed table and jerked open the drawer. Then he recoiled with an oath. The drawer of the table was empty. Part 5 Satisfied? asked Lombard. He had stripped to the skin, and he and his room had been meticulously searched by the other three men. Vera Claythorne was outside in the corridor. The search proceeded methodically. In turn, Armstrong, the judge, and Bloor submitted to the same test. The four men emerged from Bloor's room and approached Vera. It was the judge who spoke. I hope you'll understand, Miss Claythorne, that we can make no exceptions. That revolver must be found. You have, I presume, a bathing dress with you? Vera nodded. Then I will ask you to go into your room and put it on and then come out to us here. Vera went into her room and shut the door. She reappeared in under a minute dressed in a tight-fitting silk-rucked bathroom dress. Wargrave nodded approval. Thank you, Miss Claythorne. Now if you'll remain here, we'll search your room. Vera waited patiently in the corridor until they emerged. Then she went in, dressed, and came out to where they were waiting. The judge said, We're now assured of one thing. There are no lethal weapons or drugs in the possession of any of us five. That's one point to the good. We'll now place the drugs in a safe place. There is, I think, a silver chest, is there not, in the pantry? Bloor said, That's all very well, but who's to have the key? You, I suppose? Justice Wargrave made no reply. He went down to the pantry, and the others followed him. There was a small case there designed for the purpose of holding silver and plate. By the judge's directions, the various drugs were placed in this, and it was locked. Then, still on Wargrave's instructions, the chest was lifted into the plate cupboard, and this in turn was locked. The judge then gave the key of the chest to Philip Lombard, and the key of the cupboard to Bloor. He said, You two are the strongest physically. It would be difficult for either of you to get the key from the other. It would be impossible for any of us three to do so. To break open the cupboard, or the plate chest, would be a noisy and cumbersome proceeding, and one which could hardly be carried out without attention being attracted to what was going on. He paused then went on. We're still faced by one very grave problem. What has become of Mr. Lombard's revolver? Bloor said, seems to me its owner is the most likely person to know that. A white dint showed in Lombard's nostrils. He said, you damned pig-headed fool. I tell you it's been stolen from me. Wargrave asked, when did you see it last? Last night. It was in the drawer when I went to bed, ready in case anything happened. The judge nodded. He said, it must have been taken this morning during the confusion of searching for Rogers or after his dead body was discovered. Vera said, it must be hidden somewhere about the house. We must look for it. Mr. Justice Wargrave's finger was stroking his chin. I doubt if our search will result in anything. Our murderer has had plenty of time to devise a hiding place. I don't fancy we shall find that revolver easily. Bloor said forcefully, I don't know where the revolver is, but I'll bet I know where something else is that hypodermic syringe. Follow me. He opened the front door and led the way around the house. A little distance away from the dining room window he found the syringe. Beside it was a smashed china figure, a sixth broken soldier boy. 
Bloor said in a satisfied voice. Only place it could be. After he'd killed her, he opened the window and threw out the syringe and picked up the china figure from the table and followed on with that. There were no prints on the syringe. It had been carefully wiped. Vera said in a determined voice, Now let's look for the revolver. Justice Wargrave said, By all means, but in doing so, let us be careful to keep together. Remember, if we separate, the murderer gets his chance. They searched the house carefully from attic to cellars, but without result. The revolver was still missing. Chapter 13 Part 1 One of us. One of us. One of us. Three words, endlessly repeated, dinning themselves hour after hour into receptive brains. Five people. Five frightened people. Five people who watched each other, who now hardly troubled to hide their state of nervous tension. There was little pretense now. No formal veneer of conversation. They were five enemies linked together by a mutual instinct of self-preservation. And all of them suddenly looked less like human beings. They were reverting to more bestial types, like a wary old tortoise. Mr. Justice Wargrave sat hunched up, his body motionless, his eyes keen and alert. Ex-Inspector Bloor looked coarser and clumsier in build. His walk was that of a slow-padding animal. His eyes were bloodshot. There was a look of mingled ferocity and stupidity about him. He was like a beast at bay, ready to charge its pursuers. Philip Lombard's senses seemed heightened, rather than diminished. His ears reacted to the slightest sound. His step was lighter and quicker. His body was lithe and graceful. And he smiled often, his lips curling back from his long, white teeth. Vera Claythorne was very quiet. She sat most of the time huddled in a chair. Her eyes stared ahead of her into space. She looked dazed. She was like a bird that had dashed its head against glass and that has been picked up by a human hand. It crouches there, terrified, unable to move, hoping to save itself by its immobility. Armstrong was in a pitiable condition of nerves. He twitched and his hand shook. He lighted cigarette after cigarette and stubbed them out almost immediately. The forced inaction of their position seemed to gall him more than the others. Every now and then he broke out into a torrent of nervous speech. We... we shouldn't just sit here doing nothing. There must be something. Surely, surely there is something that we can do if we let a bonfire. Bloor said heavily. In this weather? The rain was pouring down again. The wind came in fitful gusts. The depressing sound of the pattering rain nearly drove them mad. By tacit consent, they had adopted a plan of campaign. They all sat in the big drawing room. Only one person left the room at a time. The other four waited till the fifth returned. Lombard said, It's only a question of time. The weather will clear. Then we can do something. Signal, light fires, make a raft, something. Armstrong said with a sudden cackle of laughter. A question of time. Time? We can't afford time. We shall all be dead. Mr. Justice Wargrave said, and his small, clear voice was heavy with passionate determination. Not if we're careful. We must be very careful. The midday meal had been duly eaten, but there had been no conventional formality about it. All five of them had gone to the kitchen. In the larder, they had found a great store of tinned foods. They'd opened a tin of tongue and two tins of fruit. They'd eaten standing around the kitchen table. 
then herding close together, they had returned to the drawing room to sit there, sit, watching each other. And by now, the thoughts that ran through their brains were abnormal, feverish, diseased. It's Armstrong. I saw him looking at me sideways just then. His eyes are mad, quite mad. Perhaps he isn't a doctor at all. That's it, of course. He's a lunatic, escaped from some doctor's house, pretending to be one. It's true. Shall I tell them? Shall I scream out? No, it won't do to put him on his guard. Besides, he can seem so sane. What time is it? Only a quarter past three. Oh God, I shall go mad myself. Yes, it's Armstrong. He's watching me now. They won't get me. I can take care of myself. I've been in tight places before. Where the hell is that revolver? Who took it? Who's got it? Nobody's got it. We know that. We've all searched. Nobody can have it. But someone knows where it is. They're going mad. They'll all go mad. Afraid of death. We're all afraid of death. I'm afraid of death. Yes, but that doesn't stop death coming. The hearse is at the door, sir. Where did I read that? The girl. I'll watch the girl, yes. I'll watch her. Twenty to four. Only twenty to four. Perhaps the clock has stopped. I don't understand. No, I don't understand. This sort of thing can't happen. It is happening. Why don't we wake up? Wake up. Judgment day. No, not that. If only I could think. My head. Something's happening in my head. It's gonna burst. It's gonna split. This sort of thing can't happen. What's the time? Oh god, it's only a quarter to four. I must keep my head. I must keep my head. If only I keep my head. It's all perfectly clear. All worked out. But nobody must suspect. It may do the trick. It, it must. Which one? That's the question. Which one? I think... Yes, I... I rather think... Him. When the clock struck five, they all jumped. Vera said, Does anyone want tea? There was a moment's silence. Blore said, I'd like a cup. Vera rose. She said, I'll go and make it. You can all stay here. Mr. Justice Wargrave said gently, I think, my dear young lady, we would all prefer to come and watch you make it. Vera stared, then gave a short, rather hysterical laugh. She said, of course. <laughs> you would. Five people went into the kitchen. Tea was made and drunk by Vera and Blore. The other three had whiskey, opening a fresh bottle and using a siphon from a nailed-up case. The judge murmured with a reptilian smile, We must be very careful. They went back again to the drawing room. Although it was summer, the room was dark. Lombard switched on the lights, but they didn't come in. He said, Of course, the engine's not been run today since Rogers hasn't been there to see to it. He hesitated and said, we could go out and get it going, I suppose. Mr. Justice Wargrave said, There are packets of candles in the larder. I saw them. Better use those. Lombard went out. The other four sat watching each other. He came back with a box of candles and a pile of saucers. Five candles were lit and placed about the room. The time was a quarter to six. Part Two at twenty past six, Vera felt that to sit there longer was unbearable. She would go to her room and bathe her aching head and temples in cold water. She got up and went toward the door. Then she remembered and came back and got a candle out of the box. She lighted it, let a little wax pour into a saucer, and stuck the candle firmly to it. 
Then she went out of the room, shutting the door behind her and leaving the four men inside. She went up the stairs and along the passage to her room. As she opened her door, she suddenly halted and stood stock still. Her nostrils quivered. The sea. The smell of the sea at St. Trednick. That was it. She couldn't be mistaken. Of course, one smelled the sea on an island anyway, but this was different. It was the smell there had been on the beach that day. But the tide out, and the rocks covered with seaweed drying in the sun. Can I swim out to the island, Miss Claythorne? Why can't I swim out to the island? Horrid, whiny, spoiled little brat. If it weren't for him, Hugo would be rich. Able to marry the girl he loved. Hugo. Surely Hugo was beside her. No, waiting for her in the room. She made a step forward. The draught from the window caught the flame of the candle. It flickered and went out. In the dark, she was suddenly afraid. Don't be a fool, Vera Claythorne urged herself. It's all right. The others are downstairs. All four of them. There's no one in my room. There can't be. You're imagining things, my girl. But that smell. That smell of the beach at St. Trednick. That wasn't imagined. It was true. And there was someone in the room. She had heard something. Surely she had heard something. And then, as she stood there, listening, a cold, clammy hand touched her throat. A wet hand, smelling of the sea. Part 3 Vera screamed. She screamed and screamed. Screams of the utmost terror. Wild, desperate cries for help. She did not hear the sound from below. Of a chair being overturned. Of a door opening. Of men's feet running up the stairs. She was conscious only of supreme terror. Then, restoring her sanity, lights flickered in the doorway. Candles. Men hurrying into the room. What the devil? What's happened? Good God, what is it? She shuddered, took a step forward, collapsed on the floor. She was only half aware of someone bending over her, of someone forcing her head down between her knees. Then at a sudden exclamation, a, a quick, My God, look at that! Her senses returned. She opened her eyes and raised her head. She saw what it was the men with the candles were looking at. A broad ribbon of wet seaweed was hanging down from the ceiling. It was that which in the darkness had swayed against her throat. It was that which she had taken for a clammy hand, a drowned hand come back from the dead to squeeze the life out of her. She began to laugh hysterically. She said, It was seaweed. Only seaweed. And that's what the smell was. And then the faintness came over her once more. Waves upon waves of sickness. Again, someone took her head and forced it between her knees. Eons of time seemed to pass. They were offering her something to drink. Pressing the glass against her lips, she smelled brandy. She was just about to gulp the spirit gratefully down when, suddenly, a warning note, like an alarm bell, sounded in her brain. She sat up, pushing the glass away. She said sharply, Where did this come from? Laura's voice answered. He stared a minute before speaking. He said, I got it from downstairs. Vera cried, I won't drink that. There was a moment's silence. Then Lombard laughed. He said with appreciation, Good for you, Vera. You've got your wits about you. Even if you have been scared half out of your life, I'll get a fresh bottle that hasn't been opened. He went swiftly out. Vera said uncertainly, I'm all right now. I'll have some water. 
Armstrong supported her as she struggled to her feet. She went over to the basin, swaying and clutching at him for support. She let the cold tap run and then filled the glass. Blore said resentfully, That brandy is alright. Armstrong said, How do you know? Blore said angrily, I didn't put anything in it. That's what you're getting at, I suppose. Armstrong said, I'm not saying you did. You might have done, or someone might have tampered with the bottle for just this emergency. Lombard came swiftly back into the room. He had a new bottle of brandy in his hands and a corkscrew. He thrust the sealed bottle under Vera's nose. There you are, my girl. Absolutely no deception. He peeled off the tinfoil and drew the cork. Lucky there's a good supply of spirits in the house. Thoughtful of you and Owen. Vera shuddered violently. Armstrong held the glass while Philip poured the brandy into it. He said, you'd better drink this, Miss Claythorne. You've had a nasty shock. Vera drank a little of the spirit. The color came back to her face. Philip Lombard said with a laugh, Well, here's one murder that hasn't gone according to plan. Vera said almost in a whisper. You think that was what was meant? Lombard nodded. Expected you to pass out through fright. Some people would have, wouldn't they, doctor? Armstrong did not commit himself. He said doubtfully, Hmm, impossible to say. Young, healthy subject, no cardiac weakness. Unlikely. On the other hand, he picked up the glass of brandy that Bloor had brought. He dipped a finger in it, tasted it gingerly. His expression did not alter. He said dubiously, Huh, tastes all right. Bloor stepped forward angrily. He said, If you're saying that I tampered with that, I'll knock your ruddy block off. Vera, her wits revived by the brandy, made a diversion by saying, Where's the judge? The three men looked at each other. That's odd. Thought he came up with us. Bloor said, So did I. What about it, doctor? You came up the stairs behind me? Armstrong said, I thought he was following me. Of course he'd be bound to go slower than we did. He's an old man. They looked at each other again. Lombard said, It's damn odd. Bloor cried, We must look for him. He started for the door. The others followed him, Vera last. As they went down the stairs, Armstrong said over his shoulder, Of course he may have stayed in the living room. They crossed the hall. Armstrong called out loudly, Wargrave! Wargrave, where are you? There was no answer. A deadly silence filled the house apart from the gentle patter of the rain. Then in the entrance to the drawing room door, Armstrong stopped dead. The others crowded up and looked over his shoulder. Somebody cried out. Mr. Justice Wargrave was sitting in his high-backed chair at the end of the room. Two candles burnt on either side of him, but what shocked and startled the onlookers was the fact that he sat there, robed in scarlet, with a judge's wig upon his head. Dr. Armstrong motioned to the others to keep back. He himself walked across to the silent staring figure, reeling a little as he walked like a drunken man. He bent forward, peering into the still face. Then, with a swift movement, he raised the wig. It fell to the floor, revealing the high, bald forehead with, in the very middle, a round, stained mark from which something had trickled. Dr. Armstrong lifted the lifeless hand and felt for the pulse. Then he turned to the others. He said, and his voice was expressionless, dead, far away. He's been shot. Bloor said, The revolver! The doctor said, still in the same lifeless voice, Got him through the head. Instantaneous. 
Vera stooped to the wig, she said, and her voice shook with horror. Miss Brent's missing gray wool. Blore said, and the scarlet curtain that was missing from the bathroom. Vera whispered, So this is what they wanted them for. Suddenly, Philip Lombard laughed, a high, unnatural laugh. Five little soldier boys going in for law, one god in chancery, and then there were four. That's the end of Mr. Bloody Justice Wargrave. No more pronouncing sentence for him. No more putting on of the black cap. Here's the last time he'll ever sit in court. No more summing up and sending innocent men to death. How Edward Seaton would laugh if he was here. God, how he'd laugh! His outburst shocked and startled the others. Vera cried, Only this morning you'd said he was the one. Philip Lombard's face changed, sobered. He said in a low voice, I know I did. Well, I was wrong. Here's one more of us who's been proved innocent. Too late.